to another episode of Issue by Issue, a DC Comics Completionist podcast. I'm your host, Nick Byers, and this is episode four, mid-1939. We'll be covering this episode, we'll be covering Detective Comics number 30, Adventure Comics number 41, Action Comics number 16, Detective Comics number 31, Adventure Comics number 42, Superman number 2, Action Comics number 17, and Detective Comics number 32. A lot to cover, but before we get to that, uh, let's set the scene and uh, let's learn about what's going on in the real world as these comics are being published and released to the public. So, August 1939. As we've said in past episodes, we are getting closer and closer to World War II. Well, guess what? We're there. August, it's still leading up. Like, we're getting to a boiler, a, a boiling point. It's about to burst. Uh, so August 2nd, first and foremost, the Einstein... S- s- oh, God. The Einstein Szilard letter uh, is signed by Albert Einstein advising the President of the United States, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, of the potential use of uranium to construct an atom bomb. It's delivered to FDR on October 11th and, and leads to the first meeting uh, of the Advisory Committee on Uranium on October 21st. This, of course, is important because... In August of 1945, we drop Little Boy and Fat Man on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, So these two bombs were developed in about six years by the Manhattan Project, thanks to this letter uh, signed by Einstein. On August 15th, MGM's classic color musical film, The Wizard of Oz, based on L. Frank Baum's famous novel and starring Judy Garland as Dorothy, premieres at the Graham's Chinese Theater in Hollywood uh, on October 25th. It is released in movie theaters throughout the United States. It's a great movie. I bet at the time, the going from the black and white to the bright Technicolor was probably amazing uh, for folks who hadn't seen anything like that before. It's still a cool effect, but obviously we are living in a different age at this point. So now it begins. September 1st, the beginning of World War II. Now, I could go through all of the dates and important things that uh, happen in September and October and for these comics, but here's the thing. This isn't a World War II podcast. There are to- so many things that happen in World War II that it would, we would be here for an entire length of an episode just to go through the main beats of this first month and second month of October of, of World War II. It's a very, very busy time, but we will hit the, the broad strokes. So, the opening shots of World War II begin with the invasion of Poland. Uh, the invasion of Poland is a joint operation by Germany, uh, the Soviet Union, the USSR, and the Slovak Republic. They are all... Uh, attacking Poland from their various uh, directions. It's a part of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. It's a non-aggression pact between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union that enabled them to partition Eastern Europe between them. So basically, Nazi Germany and the USSR are going to take Eastern Europe and split it amongst themselves. This will eventually, this pact will eventually run its course and the Soviet Union will come into the war on the side of the Allies, but obviously that has not happened at this point. It's the beginning of the war. Lots of things are in flux. Britain and France, on the same day, once once they receive word of the invasion of Poland, deliver ultimatums to Germany saying, knock it off or we will declare war on you. Norway, Finland, Sweden, and Switzerland uh, declare the neutrality. They previously did not sign non-aggression pacts, so although they are declaring their neutrality, they can, in the future, if they wish, join the war on any side. Uh, they join on the ally side. Uh, the U.S., 
uh, under FDR, uh, states that they are going to do everything in their power to stay out of the war. This is a classic thing that the U.S. does in world wars. They, they wait a long time before getting into it. Same with World War I. They're going to do it in World War II. They won't come into it until 1941 after the bombing of Pearl Harbor in December of 1941 by the Japanese. Uh, and also, Italy is advised by Germany that it's not expected to need its military support. Uh, the pact that they sign that we talked about last episode is not going to be used at this point. It will be used later. Obviously, Italy joins the war and is a detriment to the war because Mussolini is not a great leader. Uh, so moving on. September 10th, this is just a fun little tidbit. Canada declares war on Germany. And it's the only declaration of war by Canada that's ever been, I believe, from what I've read. Uh, so that's just funny. You know, Canada, eh, we're not really into declaring war, you know. But this one, we're going to put our foot down on this one. So that's good. Good job, Canada. Uh, September 28th, Nazi Germany and Soviet Union agree on a division of Poland after their invasion. Warsaw surrenders to Germany. Uh, Modlin, Warsaw is the capital of Poland, if you, if you don't know. Uh, Modlin, which is another city and outpost of resistance, uh, surrenders a day later. And then the last Polish operational unit surrenders eight days later. So, just a little bit over a month for all of Poland to be overtaken by Germany and the Soviet Union, which makes sense. The Soviet Union is a massive military force at this point, and Germany is no slouch in its own right. Uh, so, Poland was not in a position to succeed, unfortunately, for them. Uh, last little thing, back to the U.S., because, you know, the U.S. is trying to stay out of the war, so life goes on in the U.S. Uh, the comedy film... The comedy drama film Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, starring James Stewart, uh, premieres in Washington, D.C. on October 17th. Uh, so that's cool. Uh, I haven't seen that film. It's on my list of films to watch. I love James Stewart. I'm a big fan. Uh, Rear Window is a great film uh, by Alfred Hitchcock with starring James Stewart. It's great. Check it out if you haven't. Uh, but moving on to uh, the first of our issues uh, this week, Detective Comics number 30. We were previously going to cover it in the last episode. Detective Comics number 30 was released on July 13th, 1939, with a cover date of August 1939. Uh, no debuts, although a, a part of Gotham, which the city is still not known as in, in the Batman comics, is mentioned, the Bowery, which is, is a, one of the boroughs or sections of, of Gotham City. Uh, it might also just be, be a regular phrase that cities have, like most cities have a Bowery, maybe. I don't know. I just thought that that was interesting. Uh, also, something else interesting about this issue is that the format of the panels is is changing. So if you've seen any of these older comics, especially the older Superman comics, they all have that very similar sort of nine uniform square panels for each page. And I mean, that works. Uh, it doesn't give you a lot of freedom or creativity in what you can, the size of stuff you can put in panels, but it's, you know, uniform and, and People know how to read that. I noticed in this issue, in this Batman story, the formatting changes. Throughout the story, different pages will have different layouts of comic book panels. Like on the second page, there's a big, you know, semi-big panel of Batman standing there after putting on his Batman costume. He's standing there with his hands on his hips, and that panel is bigger than the other one's. Uh, to in order to get more detail and that's that's interesting we're moving towards more creative freedom for comic book layouts which which will only benefit the stories going forward uh, so but enough about that let's get into the actual story so last issue of detective comics 
Batman was dealing with Dr. Death, a, a mad scientist who had developed a sort of pollen to poison people in, in order to blackmail them by saying, give me this amount of money or I will release this and you will die. Uh, so based, a basic threat, you know, threaten, you know, extortion, get money out of someone. But in the end of the last issue, Dr. Death's mansion burned down. It was presumed by Batman and the readers that Dr. Death was dead. But issue number 30, he is still alive. It's revealed. Through the newspaper, Bruce Wayne is reading uh, that there was a strange death of a victim by some strange disease that, he, that no one knows. Like, doctors are baffled. And Bruce is thinking only Dr. Death could be at the bottom of this. Uh, so he goes to investigate. He goes to the victim's home, uh, disguises himself as a reporter, speaks to his widow, who tells him that her husband was threatened, and unless he paid half a million dollars to Dr. Death, to a Dr. Death, quote-unquote, he would die. And they don't have any money, uh, the, these Joneses. So he didn't have enough money to pay, so he died. He didn't, he didn't get the money to them in time. He didn't get the antidote, and so he died. But Mrs. Jones reveals that her husband had a hobby of collecting diamonds. You know, that normal uh, hobby of collecting diamonds, really easily found and purchased and procured by the average person. Ah, rich people. They have the most interesting lives. Bruce leaves. He tells the reader that he's going to eat, which is good. Get, get food in that system. You need it for crime-fighting energy. After his meal, he presumes it was good and he ate it, he goes to his mansion, puts on his Batman costume, drives his red non-Bat-themed car to one block away from the Joneses. They specifically say that, or Batman specifically narrates that, because he says, one block away for safety, the car handy if needed. He's obsessed with where his car is. It's an obsession, and I understand it's his mode of transportation and his mode of escape, but it's, it's, we get it. It's nearby. You don't have to tell us that it's, it's nearby. Oh, Bob Kane. Batman gets his way into the Jones's house and searches around for a hidden safe behind a painting, cracks it open very easily, and uh, finds the diamonds inside. Meanwhile, we are in some sort of room, and a man with bandages covering his entire face is smoking a cigarette out of a long cigarette holder. And it's revealed this is Dr. Death. He has been scarred and damaged from surviving the fire of his home uh, and he is talking to his henchman Mikhail not Jabba who I guess died uh, mark that down for another kill for Batman burned Jabba alive so Mikhail is now head henchman and Dr. Death sends Mikhail to the Joneses house to get the diamonds that Dr. Death knows that they have in in the safe so we then cut to Mikhail Breaking into the Joneses' residence, Batman hears him, hides behind a curtain, and Mikhail finds the safe open. The diamonds are there. He begins to package them up. Mrs. Jones, unfortunately, can't sleep. So she gets up. She's got a lantern. She's walking downstairs for some warm milk to, to put her back to sleep, which I've never understood that. I don't like milk when it's cold. I don't know if I would enjoy it hot. But to each their own, whatever whatever helps you sleep. So she notices the light is on in, in the office. And so she opens the door to see Mikhail there with a gun. He's going to shoot her, obviously. Uh, but Batman jumps out from behind his curtain and knocks Mikhail out of the window. Doesn't kill him. It's only a, you know, second floor drop. But 
Mikhail drops the diamonds as he falls out the window. And then most of the time, this would be a good thing. But Batman's all about subterfuge. So he wanted to follow the diamonds back to Dr. Death or wherever these diamonds were going. So he puts the diamonds in a bag that Mikhail was in the process of putting them in. And he throws the bag of diamonds down to where Mikhail's unconscious body is so that when he wakes up, he will take them to where he was going to in the first place. And Batman being such a good guy, he puts Mrs. Jones to bed and puts a wet washcloth on her on her f- forehead so that you know she can wake up from her, her fright, from her fainting. And then he swings away. And after Mikhail wakes up, uh, Batman follows him really, really closely. Like this panel... And I understand you don't want to waste space in this day and age because you don't have a lot of space or pages to work with. Uh, but in this panel, Batman is like maybe three feet behind Mikhail's car. Like how would Mikhail not know that he is being followed? He's an idiot, obviously, because when he wakes up, he's like, whatever happened up there, I'm glad I clung on to this bag. No, you didn't, Mikhail. You idiot. He apparently doesn't see Batman following him. And Mikhail takes the diamonds to this pawn shop. Uh, owned by Ivan Hurd. Batman deduces that he must be a fence. Uh, A fence, if you don't know, is someone who sells stolen goods without them being known. Like, without alerting the police that they're stolen. Or, most of the time, the people they're selling it to. So, after Mikhail leaves that shop, Batman continues to follow him to an apartment building. And Batman comments that it's weird that Dr. Death should live in such a like a shabby apartment building but he's like whatever uh he must not have any money after his house burned down and all of his stuff haha <laughs> laugh at someone's <laughs> misfortune love that uh, i know he's a villain but still um so batman climbs up the building uh because he knows that they'd be expecting a visitor from the front door but not from the roof yep that's right most people don't think of visitors from the roof so batman Uh, goes up there and he's going to search for which apartment it is and the first guy that he goes down is the right one what a lucky break so batman uh sneaks in and just so that he isn't disturbed he uses one of his vials of choking gas knockout gas to choke slash knockout mikhail who is laying in his bed uh presumably sleeping but you know now he's really sleeping so batman searches this room and doesn't find anything. No, no hints of where Dr. Death is. No, no clues of any kind. And after his searching, he took so long that Mikhail woke up and he's got a gun. And Batman, working or moving so quickly, dodges the bullet and jumps out the window, grabbing onto his rope that is still attached to one of the pieces of the building higher up. Mikhail is like, oh no, I missed, but I'm going to try again. I'm going to stick my head out this window and shoot at him again. Uh, Batman swings back because that's how ropes work. And uh, kicks Mikhail so hard in the head that he snaps his neck and kills him. So that's another kill. This is a a double kill. Well, no, I guess he killed Jabba last issue. So this is a single kill issue. Uh, But that Batman, he's a real killer. Uh, This will eventually, as we know, change. But the the final kill has yet to be done. So we we will continue to see... Batman just straight up murder people. Uh, he even he even comments, first Jabba, now you. And yet, Dr. Death lives on. So he's killed two of his henchmen, but Dr. Death continues to live. So Batman, after this, calls in the police and tells them that the diamonds are going to be located at Ivan Hurd's pawn shop. The, the, the diamonds that were stolen from the Joneses' residence. I don't know if they've been called in as stolen or missing yet, but Batman's 
you know, cutting it off at the pass, going to get just give word to the police first. Then they do the thing that they always do where they comment on a weird figure on top of the building. We all know it's Batman. We can see it's Batman. You don't have to say a weird figure appears on top of the building. Batman is a weirdo. We all know this. He's dressed like a bat. He swings down through the through the second floor window of the pawn shop, and inside is Ivan Hurd, presumably, uh, looking at the diamonds, examining them, probably to get a value on them so that they he can sell them. Ivan Hurd knows who this is. It's the Batman. He is scared. Batman threatens him. Ivan Hurd pushes the table over and tries to run away. Batman tries to, I guess hang him on the ground by throwing his lasso around his neck and catching him as he's trying to leave. That could really, really hurt and also could, I don't know, like damage someone's windpipe, maybe even kill them. As he does this, Ivan Hurd's hair falls off. It's a wig. And then Batman notices that he's wearing a mask as well. And underneath is an incredibly scarred and deformed Dr. Death. Um, He says that his face was destroyed in the fire and that Batman did it, and that Dr. Death wanted to get his revenge, but he needed money first. So he had to do the money thing instead of get revenge on Batman. Then we see a policeman coming into the room later and finding a tied-up, an unconscious Dr. Death, and a little note that says, Meet Dr. Death and his diamonds, period. They belong to Mrs. Jones. See that she gets them with the compliments of the Batman. And this time, he signs it the Batman. Not just a picture of a bat, but he does put a picture of a bat next to Batman. He's still a little artiste, drawing a little bat figure, but he actually wrote it because he doesn't want people to think he's called the bat. That's not right. He's Batman. So he has to put Batman as his signature. Uh, so that's that's the Batman story of uh, issue 30 of Detective Comics. This is the part of this issue where we would move on to the Crimson Avenger story in this issue. But guess what? There isn't one. Uh, weirdly, for whatever reason, likely sales or, you know, something internally, something in publishing. Crimson Avenger isn't published after Detective Comics number 29. It's not published again until Detective Comics number 37. So we're going to have to take a little break here from the Crimson Avenger, which is, you know, it, it's nice. The absence makes the heart grow fonder. So... Uh, I guess we will meet back up with the Crimson Avenger in Detective Comics number 37. So, moving on. And we will be moving on to Adventure Comics number 41. Uh, In this one, just one story as well. Uh, Sandman, as we know. It's his second appearance in Adventure Comics. Third appearance overall in comics in general because of the World's Fair comic out of order. But in this one, he is in a story titled On the Waterfront exact same title as the Marlon Brando uh, film. Uh, the writer and artist is uh, Bert Christman. No uh, Gardner Fox this time. Writer and artist, just Bert Christman this time. Uh, Adventure Comics number 41 has a release date of July 18th, 1939, and a cover date of August 1939. So, uh, getting into it, into On the Waterfront with The Sandman. We open on a woman. She's wearing a trench coat. She's spying on someone. It's not implied what she is or why she's doing it, but she's spying on two men who are walking into a freighter. But this spy is being spied on. The Sandman, for whatever reason, we do not know yet, is following this woman who is following these two men. These two men go into this freight, this freighter that's docked on the waterfront, and inside we see these two men having a conversation. The larger one, the one who seems to be in charge, 
is named Wing, which is funny because that is the Crimson Avengers sidekick. Uh, he must have taken a break from the Crimson Avenger to become a drug dealer and also to not be Asian anymore because this is a bald white man wearing a captain's hat. Uh, he is talking with this man who is a drug addict. Uh, he is um, some, some sort of vague narcotic. Uh, he references it as smoke and dope and stuff like that. Uh, but this guy wants, he needs, you know, he needs a hit. He is, he, is a, he is addicted and he is going through withdrawals. He only has $5 though. And this guy being a businessman, he's like $25 and that's, that's you know, that's the lowest I'll go or else you don't get anything, and he doesn't have that much, he only has five dollars, he, this addict says, I, you know, I'm, a, I'm an old customer, I know all about you, and all about your stuff, he's implying that he would go to, or he doesn't just imply, he says, I'll squeal to the cops, I'll go to the cops, you shouldn't say that to drug dealers, um, as Breaking Bad has shown us, you know, if you ever threaten to expose a drug dealer, they'll do something to you, some sort of killing, or maiming, or blow your wheelchair up although i believe he blows his wheelchair up but the the spy overhears this the female spy in the trench coat uh she has stolen aboard the the vessel as well and she is listening uh and the men throw this this drug addict overboard and she says murder this story's more than i bargained for so she is a reporter uh, and as she's, you know, saying that to herself and to us, the the audience, her belt buckle, cl you know, clinks against a, an oil drum, an empty oil drum, so it makes a noise. And these two men notice her, and they, you know, shoot shoot their guns off uh, at her, and she jumps over the side. They think they got her, but then they notice that she is swimming away. So they, you know, muster the men, get into rowboats, and they start rowing after her. Uh, we see one of these men in, in one of the robots looking for her. It, his boat is toppled over by the Sandman wearing his, you know, his signature gas mask, which must also, well, I don't, it's not, it's not implied or said that it works as a diving mask as well. It looks like it's hooked up to some sort of air thing, but that could also just be his, uh, holster for his gun. And I believe it is. So his gas mask doesn't make it so he can swim underwater, you know, breathe underwater or anything. But he's still wearing it, and he's wearing swimming trunks and uh, a holster for his gas gun. He grabs the woman uh, and brings her up onto the boat, and they are going to make their escape. But uh, before they can, Wing, the leader, his boat motors is motoring over and he calls out any signs of her tipper. The guy who Sandman pulled out of the, out of the boat is apparently named Tipper. Uh, the Sandman has stolen his coat and his hat and is wearing it uh, as a disguise. So his sort of silhouette uh, looks like this tipper. And he says, nope, she's not over here. And it seems like they're going to get away. The bad guys see a figure swimming through the water and they shoot at it with their Tommy gun. They discover that this is Tipper, one of their men. So they figure out that the people on the boat must have been the girl and some person that's helping her. So they look around for them. They see them go into this old powerhouse on, on the waterfront. So back on shore. 
the Sandman and this woman have very little time before the bad guys get to them. So the Sandman, in order to keep her out of harm's way, says hide in this furnace so they won't think to look for you in there. And then the, the Sandman is going to try to get the jump on these men. And he does. He gets the jump on one and then finds some matches. So he's going to go up to the top and light a signal fire to get the authorities of some kind to come over to the building. As he's climbing up, they shine a flashlight on him, the bad guys. They shoot him, they think they get him, and the Sandman falls over this ledge. Then they search around and they eventually find this woman in the furnace and are going to set fire inside the furnace in order to either burn her alive or get her to come out. On the roof, the Sandman's plan of starting a signal fire, he starts it so the the police will be here in, uh, he, he says, in minutes so in, in a short amount of time, uh, fires in places where fire shouldn't be typically bring authorities of some kind, which is, you know, that's a smart, that's a smart idea, Sandman. So as the men are try- attempting to get the course, the woman out, the reporter out of the furnace by threatening to start this fire, the Sandman swoops down, shoots them with his gas gun. They all are knocked out. It doesn't say anything about sprinkling sand. I suppose he's too wet. His supply of sand is mud at this point. So no sprinkling sand for him, no calling card. How will they know? Uh, she will tell that the Sandman saved her. Because she says at the end, oh, what a story I've got when the police show up. And that's the end. That's Adventure Comics number 41. That's Sandman. It has all the, uh, well, does it have all of the hallmarks of, of the first Sandman story? I guess not really, kind of. No detecting, no, like, no detectiving. Uh, but there is Gascon, uh, Sandman wearing his quote-unquote all-black outfit at the beginning before he turns into changes into his swimming trunks. Um, a fine story, uh, along very along the lines of Crimson Avenger, which, let's be honest, they're basically the same character except the Sandman wears a gas mask and sprinkles sand on his, not victims, but the people he captures. But other than that, basically the same character, so... Uh, sorry to burst anyone's bubbles about the distinctness of these two characters. So yeah, that's Adventure Comics number 41, and uh, moving on. The next issue we'll be covering is Action Comics number 16, released on August 1st, 1939, with a cover date of September 1939. Uh, A classic duo, Superman and Zatara stories in this one. Uh, We do actually have a, a debut in Action Comics number 16, in the Superman story, Superman references the name of the city he lives in as Metropolis. And if you look up Metropolis, it is shown as Action Comics 16. It's its debut, its first uh, its first reference. So we've now got a name for the city, Metropolis. It's all coming into shape. Eventually, Superman will get a job at the Daily Planet and we'll have all of the you know pieces in place of what we know of as Superman. So let's get into Action Comics number 16's Superman story. We uh, find Superman, uh, you know, flying, not flying, leaping through the sky because he can't fly yet at this point. Uh, He's racing high over the darkened city uh, looking for, you know, someone in need of assistance. He finds this guy who is in the woods. He's standing at the top of a tree and he has a rope in his hand. Uh, The guy is going to commit suicide. Uh, which is a common trope of, of Superman comics, as we've seen in past 
issues and past stories that Superman often saves people from suicide. And those suicide attempts always end are always involve either jumping out of buildings or in this case hanging himself. So this guy has tied a noose and he is about to leap from this tree. Superman rushes, saves him, and and brings him safely to the ground. And he asks the guy, why are you doing this? Uh, the guy says that he stole money from his employer and he uh, can't give it back because Superman suggests that. It's like, why don't you give it back if you know if you feel bad for taking it? And he says he can't because he, he lost it all gambling at the gambling tables. And at this point in time, let's, let's be clear, because this story involves gambling as the main focal point. Gambling is not legal in the United States at this point. Gambling doesn't get legalized outside of Las Vegas um, until about 1978, in the 1970s at some point. Uh, when casino gambling is then legalized in other states. So any gambling that you do not in Las Vegas at this point in time is illegal. Horse racing and stuff like that might be different um, if it's through some sort of legal uh, like sports book or something, but casino gambling is illegal at this point. So he lost at the gambling tables, which are illegal. Uh, Superman, you know, says, well, don't, you know, if you kill yourself, then uh, it'll make it difficult for your wife and family, and uh, you should just take your medicine for your actions, which, hey, that's fair. He, uh, As Superman rushes away, he does says, uh, he, the guy says, I must have been mad to consider suicide. I'll do as you say. And then Superman jumps off saying, now you're talking more like a man, which it's 1939. Superman uh, the, has a lot of patriarchal thought processes as do many men at the time it's quite uh sexist to think that men you know get depressed and feel like there's no way out other than to end their lives and let's be clear men do feel that way a lot of men feel that way um i don't have statistics in front of me but i, I believe that suicide attempts or suicides in general a lot of uh, a high percentage of them are men so uh this idea, of course, it's 1939. Superman wouldn't have had this data or, you know, these thought processes and Jerry and Joe wouldn't have likely either because they're men in the 1930s. So, but let's be clear. Men do often get depressed and often commit suicide. So it's not unmanly to do it if that if you feel that that is the only way out. Um, I, I suggest seeking help if you can, um, but I'm not going to tell anyone how to live their life. But Back to the Superman story. Superman goes home. And I do love this thing in these stories. Like with Superman and Batman, whenever whenever Superman or Batman changes from their superhero persona into their regular one, the comic is always like shocked. And I understand that that's for first-time readers who pick up the comic book and uh, don't know, you know, who Superman is or who Clark Kent is. But, you know, Superman goes to his apartment and changes out of his Superman costume in the next morning, it, the comic specifically, the panel specifically says, from the very same apartment. So we know that Clark Kent and Superman are the same guy. I just think it's funny. And I understand the reasoning for it, but I just think it's funny. So uh, Clark Kent goes to his job at the Daily Star as an ace reporter. And he's talking to George Taylor, his editor, and says, why hasn't the Daily Star done anything about gambling in Metropolis. And this is where he references Metropolis for the first time. Uh, panel 21 in Action Comics number 16. 
George Taylor tells him that someone in the city's administration is protecting the big time gamblers. Like everyone knows that this illegal stuff is going on, but it, no one does anything about it. And that's, of course, because government big wigs are protecting it. And that I, let's not let's not get it twisted. That's that existed in the in real life, too. There was gambling going on in cities across America illegally, but local governments covered it up because they were likely getting kickbacks. That's just how it works, uh, unfortunately. Clark convinces George Taylor to put him to allow him to do the story, and Clark heads first to the police commissioner's office because he would be in charge of arresting gamblers because it's illegal. Uh, Clark and the commissioner get into a sort of row. Clark says basically, hey, you're incompetent or you're getting kickbacks and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and the commissioner says, hey, we've got bigger problems, murderers, robbers, stuff like that. Uh, we, don't have, we don't have time to chase after gamblers, you know, mis misdemeanors type stuff. And Clark basically calls him incompetent or that he's breaking the law, and the commissioner throws him out of his office. So Clark says, well, then, you know what? This doesn't look like a job for Clark Kent. We need someone with some power. Uh, so Superman, it's Superman's turn to take on gambling in Metropolis. Superman first heads to uh, the most prominent and flagrant gambling club that he knows about, um, which is the most popular one in the city, obviously. Uh, so he looks in on the proprietor of said gambling establishment, counting money, and he's made like $5,000 that night, and that's really impressive for him. Good job. The classic thing, he tries to shoot Superman. Superman grabs his gun, breaks it. Uh, he brings in his goons. Uh, the goons are like, we're going to rough you up, Superman. Superman's like, I'd love to see you try. Uh, and he says, you're going to feel silly in a second. And they do uh, because he gets a nice little workout in. Uh, throwing these dudes around. Who needs free weights when you've got goons to to get your reps in on? Uh, so Superman, after beating up these goons, goes out into the gambling floor, in the gambling room, and starts smashing all the equipment. And the gamblers are like, hey, you know, if we want to gamble, no one can stop us. I mean, yes, they can. It's illegal. You, I, The law can stop you if it wants to. Uh, Superman says you might as well give your money to charity because you, you're never going to win. And, I mean, that's likely true. You're never going to come out ahead most of the time uh, when in gambling in the long term. Uh, I'm not a big fan of gambling. Let's just get that out there. I I find it to be uh, a pointless waste of money. Sure, it, I mean, it's it's fun, but I, it, well, is it fun? I For me, personally, it's not fun. Uh, I find it nerve-wracking because I am very... Uh, money conscious I get very anxious about money um, so I don't enjoy gambling I and I and uh, it's becoming more and more of a, a presence especially if you watch sports because um, as I've said on previous episodes I'm a big hockey fan uh, and it has become just like the sport has just become inundated with hot with betting like in between periods they're always talking about like the money line and like the over under and I'm just like I don't I don't care. And I think that gambling can be quite dangerous, just like any other legalized, you know, sort of something that's maybe negative, like smoking or drinking and, and, and stuff like that. Uh, and I'll, let's be honest, I don't think that, you know, that kind of stuff should be advertised either. Like smoking isn't you can't advertise for smoking because we know that it is bad. But I mean, they advertise alcohol all the time. and We know that alcohol is bad, too. So but I think that uh, gambling is uh, not great. Uh, I don't do it. If you want to do it, that's fine. Like I said, not going to tell anyone how to live their life. But 
Uh, I see where Superman's coming from in this one. So, but back to the comics. Sorry, I got up on my soapbox again. Two soapboxes in in one issue. Jeez, going to be a long episode. But he starts smashing the machines, and he shows these gamblers that the machines are rigged. They have wires and and push buttons underneath that that rig the machines to land a certain way, uh, depending on who's bet. Because this this in particular is a roulette wheel, so this it's probably got a magnet. Uh, that kind of stops at certain points, depending on how the dealer wants it to, uh, or the, re- the the wheel spinner. So the gamblers join in with Superman and start busting up uh, the, the gambling equipment. Superman is a man of the people, after all. He goes back into the uh, gambling proprietor's office, and he wants to know where the safe is. The proprietor says, I'll never tell you the combination, so, you know, you're just out of luck. Well, Superman's not out of luck because he's Superman. He's a human can opener, and this safe is a can. So he busts the door open pretty easily uh, and just grabs a bunch of the money. Uh, The proprietor calls him a devil, and Superman says, nuh-uh, and leaves. Uh, then he goes to uh, the poorer section of the city uh, and just kind of throws money from the sky. Good job. Give it back to the poor. Very Robin Hood of you, Superman. I'm, I'm proud of you. He then goes, he's, you know, he jumps to, because he has to jump. Superman can't fly yet. So he, he, in one of his landings, he lands in the backyard of this sort of ramshackle residence. And he overhears a uh, wife speaking to her husband, telling him to knock off all this gambling on horse racing. And the husband says, okay, I, I will stop. Don't worry. I, I will stop. You got, you believe me, please. Uh, Superman follows the guy the next day, or I guess that night. Um, I think it's that night. Cause it says, yeah, it says later. So that night, you know, cause it's, 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 I guess middle of the day ish. Well, no, I guess it would have been nighttime at the gambling establishment. Yeah. So just later that night, uh, he follows this husband, uh, and he goes to this barber shop, and inside the barber shop proprietor, the barber is he works as a bookie. So uh, the guy bets five dollars, which in back in the day was a lot of money. And then as he's leaving, Superman asks him for his watch, and then breaks it, uh, and says if he doesn't quit gambling, he's gonna do the same to his neck. Superman does a lot of threatening in this episode, um, episode issue in this issue. Uh, a lot of threatening of people's lives. Uh, so he's he's threatening this guy that he's going to break his neck if he doesn't quit gambling. Uh, the guy says, I will, I promise, uh, and, and he runs away. Superman goes into the bar- barber shop to talk to the barber uh, slash bookie and threatens him also by punching the wall next to his head and says the next time, uh, if you don't tell me what I want to know, the next time it'll be your face. And he wants to know who runs, like, who's, like, top dog in running books in the city. And he finally tells him it's Jack O'Leary, and Superman heads to that to Jack O'Leary's uh, residence. And uh, as is Superman tradition, uh, Butler doesn't allow him in, and so the butler, or so Superman just pushes the butler out of the way and opens the door and walks in, because that's what Superman does. He did in the first issue of Action Comics, and he's, and he's not stopping now. Jack O'Leary is going to go for a gun. Superman says, don't even think about it. He smashes the desk uh, that O'Leary was going to go towards to get the gun. Uh, and then they play this sort of cat and mouse game where Jack O'Leary is trying to escape through the many different exits of this room. 
and Superman just says, hey, you're just going to tire yourself out because he keeps running to block the exit that Jack O'Leary is trying to go through. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty humorous. He just says, you'll tire yourself out. Just, you know, t- relax, buddy. After which uh, Superman uh, asks if he's ready to cooperate. Jack O'Leary says yes. Uh, Superman wants to talk to all of the gambling establishments. He wants a meeting with all of the heads of the gamblers. Or he wants to know who they all are. So Jack O'Leary gives up a list of all the gambling establishments in, in Metropolis. Superman then spends the next few hours destroying them, just wrecking them inside and out. Uh, the, the gambling proprietors call the police, and the police laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh because uh, they're not going to help them because they know they exist. They are illegal, um, but they have a mandate not to do anything about it, but it doesn't mean that they have to help them either. So one of them, though, calls someone that promised them protection, and Superman is, is on the roof listening in with his super hearing, and this guy asks for this person... Um, who's giving them protection to 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 come to a meeting and he does and superman's waiting for him and it's the police commissioner of course uh so superman swings in uh and says to the commissioner uh you're a clever man uh so he's not gonna beat around the bush do what i say or i'm gonna kill you he says prepare to meet your end uh superman is you know really 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 you know not not pulling any punches in this issue he's being very threatening because, I mean, sometimes that's what you got to do uh, when people are breaking the law and no one's doing anything about it. The commissioner calls a meeting of all of the gambling establishments that he's protecting uh, from the law. And they all get there. And Superman says, you all, you're all going to leave. You're a parasitic vice on this city uh, and you have no place here. So he's inviting you all to get out of Metropolis while you can in one piece. And the gambler's, of course, being, you know full in themselves say what if they don't want to say what if we what if we don't want to get out what if we refuse uh and superman says oh well okay well, let's play a little game a little game of chance you like it. you're you know gambling men um i'm gonna pass out these cards and one of them is the ace of spades and whoever has the ace of spades has 12 hours to leave i'm gonna come to their house and i'm going to kill them with my own bare hands and they're all, and now there's there's its tension. There's dread amongst these gamblers, and they're all nervous. It's about it's kind of like getting the short straw when you're you know drawing straws for some bad thing, uh, like not dying, like like in this situation. So everyone gets their cards. They have chances chance to look at it, and then Superman collects the cards. Which I mean, I guess I mean they're his cards. So, uh, and then Superman rushes off back to his back to his apartment and he writes up a story as Clark Kent that the commissioner resigns and uh, then we see a radio announcer says no doubt as a result of Superman's activities the city was rid of its gamblers today as they departed in a mad rush for parts unknown uh, then George Taylor tells Clark he did a good job on his article but he's wondering how Superman got all the crooks to leave and Clark's like I don't know but I bet it would make a good story and then the last final panel is Clark sitting in his uh, office or at his house in his office. Uh, and he is shuffling the deck of cards and he's and all of them are ace of spades. It's a classic, you know, the deck was rigged in my favor all along. Um, so, yeah, a good story, a good 
example of Superman being a champion of the oppressed and and of the little people, because you know gambling, uh, people it can some people have problems with it. You know they can't stop, and with the little money they have, they're throwing it away. So it can be it can be a bad thing uh, if you don't have control over it. And so Superman's just there helping out the little guy. Because, uh, I mean, the poor are already have some, having such a hard time. No sense in wasting more money. Uh, but, yeah, a pretty good a pretty good um, Superman story. Typically, the Superman stories where he's fighting against some sort of, you know, societal harm like reckless driving, I think it's sort of uh, futile. But this one, I feel like he did a good enough job, like, that if if gambling does come back, to metropolis i don't think it will have as big of an impact or as big of a foothold because they know that superman's gonna get them uh which is harder to do with something like reckless driving driving so so yeah uh so let's move on to the zatara story okay the zatara story for action comics number 16 is entitled zatara the master magician and the terror from saturn now you'll learn that they don't know a lot about saturn in this uh story because they imply that people can live on saturn that it's a solid thing which we know it is not it is a gas giant but it's 1939 and i don't know how much um astronomical knowledge they have of saturn so the story starts off with um, Zatara and Tong, and um, this story is a perfect example of why Tong is an unnecessary character that's just there to, to, to speak in a funny voice, a funny accent, um, in stilted English, and, and serves no real purpose to the story, because most of the story, Tong is not in it. He is in the beginning. So, Tong and Zatara walking around uh, along a country road one night, and uh, Tong points out and says, Master, look, see that man's legs? And so they're watching this guy, and this ray hits this man, and he begins to disappear and float up into the sky. And, and y'all, it's happening. It's happening. Zatara says words backwards for spells. Man, it, Action Comics 16, things are just, like, coming together um, as we know them in the present because he says come down but he says imak nuad uh so come down uh and he is he puts out some spectral hands and grabs the guy from the ray before he can disappear uh up into the cosmos or whatever uh and the guy is confused and they take him to this scientist man that zatara knows the scientist jerzinski Drzinski tells Zatara about cosmic rays and the theorized possibility that they're able to transport people across great distances of space. That's cool. Uh, so cosmic rays are going to be involved in something space-based. Uh, obviously by the title, The Terror from Saturn, that makes sense. Uh, so Zatara and Tong the next night are out in the same spot and they're waiting to see something to happen. But then they're like, oh, we need someone to sacrifice to the rays because for whatever reason, Tong and Zatara aren't good enough for the rays. Uh, and at that moment, a guy is going to shoot them with a gun for some reason. He says, I'll get these meddlers. And it's like, what? They're not meddling. So Tong gets shot. And he says, master me shot. And it makes me angry. And we move on. And... Uh, Zatara does some more backwards talk. He says, in forwards, he says, Sikkim hands. Um, but in 
backwards it says kiss oh it says kiss me oh happy valentine's day it says kiss me sna sna kiss me sna and so his, his arms get really really long and grab the guy and the guy's not talking Zatara uses a spell and says, Snoog dna slog ekam me klat, uh, which means goons and ghouls make him talk. So he's scared by all these visions of goons and ghouls, and then he talks. And he says that he was sitting alone in his old barn, as country folk are wont to do, and this scary flying pizza slice... Uh, appears in his barn uh, and it it, it, get, it reaches into his mind and tells him that it's hungry and it wants some food so he feeds him some oh looks like maybe chicken legs uh, there's bones in it so probably chicken legs maybe the tri- the pizza slice triangle wants him to go to the college the old college observatory and in it is this pool of liquid or whatever with a light shining on it and the triangle is like, look at this cool pool. And and the guy's like, yeah, it's cool. Uh, Zatara and Tong head up to the old college observatory. He does, oh, oh, Tong is bandaged from his gunshot wound. Good. Wouldn't want to use magic to heal Tong, your partner. Just bandage him up. Not like, heal bullet wound backwards. Uh, so they go to the observatory and they open the door. And what's inside? The flying pizza slice. And the pizza slice has a name and it's Gorla. Uh, and Gorla commands the Earthman, Zatara, to render obedience. Zatara is going to try to fight back against these mind intrusions, but Gorla's mind powers are super powerful. So he, say, he stops Zatara from doing that. And then he tricks Zatara. He says that this cosmic ray transmitter, this pool, is a cosmic ray transmitter and can shoot him back to the planet Saturn. And then he, he pushes with his, little, with his little pizza slice arms, into Zatara into the pool, and uh, Zatara shoots across outer space to the planet of Saturn, which is solid, it's not, <laughs> and sandy, which it's also not. And a man with green skin, and uh, you know what? He is dressed a lot like the Martian Manhunter. So he's got, he's got the sort of uh, booty shorts that the Martian Manhunter wears, uh, the boots crossed his chest, and the cape. So I wonder... Hmm, that, that's interesting. I wonder if that's just kind of maybe was their go-to for alien guy who is, you know, man-shaped. Sure, without even maybe like maybe whoever created Martian Manhunter had read this comic and said, hey, that's a good idea for a Martian. So this guy lassos him, this alien, and uh, Zatara goes, Osal Flesriori. Uh, which is lasso yourself backwards. And so the lasso uh, falls off of Zatara and lassos this guy. And this guy explains that this is Saturn and they ruined it. It's super dry and, and the crops don't grow and all this kind of stuff. And they are they sent Gorla to Earth to see if it was habitable, see if it was a place uh, that they could take over and, and make their new civilization on. And Gorla was supposed to send back a human for study, and they sent, and he sent Zatora for study. This guy, whose name is Pora, will is going to lead Zatara to their leader, Ool O O L, who lives in the grand city of Ool O O L. So yeah, at one time Saturn had a great waterway, and the nation great sailors, all this kind of stuff. But the seas dried up, dried up, and it's just a sandy, you know, ocean bottom now, and, and nothing can grow except for these weird 
trees. So they get to the city of Ul, and Ul is magnificent. It's very big, big, big buildings, all that kind of stuff. And then Zatara, in order to get the upper hand, casts a spell to make the city disappear in the eyes of uh, Pora. Pora thinks that Zatara has made the city disappear, but it's not. It still exists, and he just can't see it. And Zatara says, I'll bring it back if you take me to your leader so that I can negotiate it, negotiate the recall of Gorla, and uh, a promise to not capture earth for your new civilization so he does that and he's taken to ul and ul is talking to gorla at the moment and there's this funny exchange it says what weird shape do you assume on earth gorla you are a triangular thing and gorla says me a thing i who am one of the handsomest of the royal princes gorla is royal and it is revealed that pora is royal as well sons of ul so Gorla's giving a, an update saying like, hey, this place is great. There's fertile land for growing things and fruits and edibles and all this kind of stuff. Zatara is ushered into the room with Ul. So he, you know, Zatara asks, don't, I want you to re- recall Gorla and don't capture Earth or, or else. And then he pulls the same trick on Ul that he does on Pora and makes Ul the city disappear. Uh, but then he also shows Ul what they could do if they utilized the magical technology of irrigation and uh, canals and such. Uh, Ul is impressed by that, but he he's still thinks it's just easier to take over Earth and make that their new civilization. So they uh, they have angered Zatara, they, they think, uh, and Zatara disappears and then reappears like floating above them. And then he makes the city of Ul reappear, and they're sitting in the throne room, and a secret... Uh, a hidden lanceman is going to hurl a weapon at Zatara, and Zatara turns it into a model of the planet Saturn. And this is the point where you can tell we as modern-day people um, can tell that they did not know a lot about the, the planet of Saturn because the model of Saturn is just a tan ball. It's no rings, no, you know, of the, the coloration of, of the actual body of Saturn. Just, just tan, tan orb. And then Zatara takes Ul on this sort of mind journey of, like, stuff that he s- says he'll do to Saturn. If Ul attempts to take over Earth, he's going to throw meteors and stuff at Saturn and break it all up and, and stuff like this. And he convinces Ula that, that he is a super powerful, you know, this cosmic, powerful being that can do all these things. Obviously, I don't know if Zatara can... He's very powerful, but I don't know if he's that powerful. And Ul recalls Gorla. Uh, when Gorla reappears, he does. He is. He, you know what? He is a handsome guy. He's got brown hair. He looks like Superman. He's a handsome guy. And then Zatara uh, teaches Pora and Ul and all those guys irrigation so they can make Saturn just as fertile as Earth. And then they send Zatara back to uh, Earth. And then Zatara says. He wakes Tong up because Tong fell asleep. He was waiting so long. And, whoa, I didn't notice this when I was reading. So so at, as Tong, as, as Zatara wakes up Tong, he says, we got to talk to scientist Jerzinski. He'll be interested in what I have to say. Or will he, question mark? He will call me a fraud, I'm certain. I'll just say nothing about it. I'll tell it to my readers in Action Comics. They'll know better, I'm sure. Whoa. So Zatara first reads an issue of Action Comics on a plane. And then, you know, like 10 issues later, he references Action Comics. Wow. He's the original Deadpool uh, or She-Hulk. Really, really breaking the fourth wall, Zatara is. Oh, man. 
all those Deadpool fans in in pieces, knowing that Deadpool didn't create Breaking the Fourth Wall. Uh, but yeah, that's the end of the Zatara story in Action Comics 16, and the end of Action Comics 16. Okay, moving on to Detective Comics number 31, released on August 10th, 1939, with a cover date of September 1939. And as last issue of Detective Comics shows, Crimson Avenger's not in this one. It won't be in uh, Detective Comics story until I think, did I say 37? Uh, so, so just Batman in this one. Just he gets the cover treatment. It's a pretty cool cover. It's got a, a like a mountain with a, a spooky castle on it, and Batman is in the background. And in the foreground, a like a red cloaked figure is carrying an unconscious woman. It looks pretty cool. This Batman story was written by Gardner F. Fox and uh, drawn by Bob Kane. So this this Batman story is posthumously. Well, wait, that means after it's dead. In the future, it is given the, the title Batman versus the Vampire. But uh, as we'll see, it really doesn't have anything to do with Vampire. And I, I'm assuming that the Vampire aspect will be revealed in issue number 32. This story starts out with Batman rushing around the city. It's, it's said it's New York. The city's never been named before, and this is the first time it's been named as New York. Obviously, that'll change to Gotham eventually, but right now he's operating out of New York for whatever reason. Uh, so he's, he's swooping around New York trying to find something, trying to find somebody, and he finds what he's looking for. It's a woman in a bathrobe, like in her bathrobe. doesn't look like she has any other clothes on except for this bathrobe. Um, you can see shoulder, scandalously enough. Oh, my gosh. And she is attempting to kill a man, uh, just an unnamed man, it's not said, and Batman saves him by grabbing him with his rope, his handy-dandy rope, and bringing him up to uh, the roof of the building that they are by. Batman then swoops down, and he realizes that this woman is Julie Madison. Uh, Julie Madison is Bruce Wayne's fiance. She's never been mentioned before, this is the first time we're hearing of her. But Bruce Wayne, because at this point in time, Bruce Wayne actually exists in Batman stories, as as in future Batman stories, Bruce Wayne falls further and further into the background of not important, uh, simply Batman's disguise. You know, that old thing where Batman's the true identity and Bruce Wayne is the disguise. So, but in this one, Bruce Wayne has a life. He has a social life. He has friends. He has um, a fiance, Julie Madison. And uh, Batman brings her home. Uh, he doesn't talk much to not reveal his secret identity. And the next day, Bruce, Julie tells Bruce what happened. And Bruce brings Julie to a doctor. And this doctor, Dr. Trent, um, I don't know if it's the same doctor from previous. It doesn't look like it. This looks like an older doctor. He says that Julie's been hypnotized. And like we all know, like that's common knowledge now. The cure for being hypnotized is to go on an ocean, like an overseas journey. Uh, so he suggests, the doctor suggests, that Julie go on a trip to Paris and then um, possibly on to Hungary, the land of history and werewolves. You know those two things Hungary's famous for, history and werewolves. And that's just what they do. Bruce books Julie a ticket with his piles of cash on lunar lines to take her to Paris, and then from there, presumably, she'll go to Hungary. I don't know. It's a weird choice of places, but um, 
there's clearly a reason for this. And uh, I should mention, Bruce comments that there was something off about Dr. Trent. He seemed transfixed for some reason. So Bruce has, you know, taken Julie to the boat, to the ship, and she's gotten on on it, and she's taken sail uh, onto the ocean. And Bruce is like, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel right. So he puts on his Batman costume, and he goes to the Bat Cave. It's not called the Bat Cave. It, it looks like it's just like a big room. And from what it's from what we see in the panels, it does look like it's just a big room in his mansion. Uh, and inside, he's got two new tools, two new gadgets. Gadget alert! Wee woo wee woo. Uh, we got the Batarang, and in this one, it's not just a thing that he throws and it goes in a straight line. It's a legitimate boomerang that has bat-like wings on it, or a bat-like d- wing design. Uh, so it goes in a circle. So that's it's good that the name actually meant something, bat back in the um, day because now they just they're basically just thrown in one direction right a straight line and uh, unless it's specifically noted that they come back or like they're remote controlled uh, like in the Arkham uh, games Uh, those are always so hard to navigate like for me at least it was so difficult to steer those remote controlled batarangs but uh, the second gadget is the bat gyro which looks like a plane but it has a helicopter propeller on top as well. So it's got the front propeller, and it's got uh, the helicopter propeller, which is a design that helicopters do use still, you know, uh, high-speed helicopters, uh, at least I think. I'm not a helicopter expert, so this isn't a helicopter expert podcast. So off he flies. Um, Everyone in the streets of New York is scared. They say, look, a bat, and they say, the end of the world, we're attacked by Martians. Um, a much less joyous uh, cry from th- from the people on the street uh, as compared to when it's Superman. You know, it's a, oh, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman. No, this one, it's a very spooky bat, uh, or it's Martians invading the Earth. And you know what? I think that's the way Batman likes it. That's what he prefers. And you know what? I get it. So he flies the bat gyro uh, and sets the automatic pilot. Look at him, advanced technology. Uh, above the ship that Julie is uh, sailing on. And he gets down there, and he just he doesn't feel right. He wants to grab J- Julie off of the ship. He just doesn't feel like this is safe. And as he's you know going to do that, uh, this man in like a red robe with a, like a Cobra Commander face covering hood, like the, the fabric Cobra Commander, not like the helmet one, attacks. And Batman is feeling like he it's harder and harder to move. He feels transfixed. He feels hypnotized. But he fights with a force of will, throws his batarang. It misses, but it distracts him and breaks the spell that Batman's under. So Batman flees. Uh, Batman is a coward. And he climbs up his rope ladder without Julie and continues to follow the ship to Paris. Then, weirdly, he has to search all of Paris for Julie. It's like, dude, you know where the ship was. I don't know why you have to do this search. You could have just followed her from the ship. Uh, no one speaks French. So, weird Paris. Maybe they went to Paris, Texas. But that's an inland city. I don't know. No one speaks French. Uh, and finally, the Batman uh, finds Julie's hotel room. And, you know, sneaks inside to, to rescue her from whatever, I guess from this 
monk who now has her, you know? Uh, and a giant ape, just out of nowhere, comes. And, uh, like, we're talking huge. We're talking, like, probably, like, 10, 12 feet tall, maybe? Huge, huge ape. The ceilings in this hotel room must be insane. Uh, and as Batman dives to avoid this giant ape, he falls through a sliding door that was, like, in the wall. Uh, and then tumbles down into this net. Uh, it's not an acrobatic net. That is later. Uh, so he's caught in this net by this monk, who is referred to as the monk. And the monk begins to lower the net into this pit of presumably poisonous snakes. Uh, it's not mentioned. It's just said a den of snakes. And, I mean, if they're just regular snakes, non, non-venomous, they're just snakes. They might bite you, but, like, you'll be fine. Um... Uh, but no, probably poisonous, probably venomous. Sorry, that's, there's a distinction between the two. Uh, and so Batman uses his batarang again. Uh, he throws it to hit the switch to stop it, the net from lowering. But then also on its return trip to hit a like a light fixture to break the glass. And Batman catches the batarang and a piece of glass. Why he wouldn't have like a knife in his utility belt, uh, I don't know. Don't ask so many questions uh, is probably what... Gardner F. Fox and, and Bob Kane were thinking, stop asking so many questions. Batman has sl- has stopped his descent, but the monk is like, well, I'm just standing right next to the switch. I'm just going to turn it back on. Foiled. Ah, Batman's plan. Foiled. But Batman now has this piece of glass, so he is going to cut the rope of the net and get out of the den just in time. And he chases after the monk through a door, and on the other side is a steel cage that drops on, down in in front of Batman, trapping him on the side opposite of the monk. So the monk escapes, and the giant ape returns and is lowered down, and Batman and him are having a, a fight, and uh, Batman, you know, uses his batarang and, and climbs on a rope and, and escapes and gets back up into the bat gyro and follows the car that is speeding away that has presumably the monk and Julie in it, and he, he jumps down on top of it, throws a gas pellet, the old standby, into the into the car. It crashes into a tree. Julie's fine, other than being knocked out. She doesn't have any injuries. Good job. I bet she was wearing a seatbelt. Seat I'm just kidding. Seatbelts weren't around at the time, I don't think. Uh, but no, uh, Batman rescues uh, Julie up into the bat gyro. He doesn't return to New York City. He is planning on vengeance on the monk. So he is going to go to Hungary and get his get his revenge for trying to i guess the monk is obsessed with julie i don't know it's not clear hopefully it's clear in the next story because that's where this one ends batman is flying in the bat gyro off to hungary and it says you know find out next time on dragon ball z no batman that is the story the batman story from detective comics number 30 um pretty good it's got all the good hallmarks of a good batman story cool gadgets fighting weird uh villains kind of traveling because i mean in in his later years batman is uh, traveling all over the place so that's cool uh yeah i'd say it was pretty good uh so moving on our next issue is adventure comics number 42 released on august 15th 1939 with a cover date of september 1939 uh this one was written by bert chrisman or was it Oh, yes. This one continues the trend of the pseudonym Larry Dean being used by Burt Chrisman. 
And I don't know if Gardner F. Fox had any involvement with this one. From what I'm looking at, no, he didn't. Just Burt Christmas doing both the art and the plot. And uh, boy, does this one have a plot. It it involves it's mostly just Wesley Dodds. Like there are there's some Sandman, but mostly for subterfuge, not for really Sandman doing any of his Sandman stuff. He um, uh, I'll be quick because it's not a very long story, and it's also not very uh, Sandmany as I've said. So it involves Wesley Dodds. He uh, it starts well it starts out with these two guys getting letters and getting into airplanes and flying to a location in the Northwest and they meet and when they land they meet Wesley Dodds and it's revealed that a Wesley Dodds was in the military he was in the Air Force uh, no the Navy sorry I always get confused because like the Air Force is the Air Force right um, it's right there in the name but then the Navy also has an Air Force and I think maybe the Army has an Air Force too it just it doesn't make any sense to me personally but there they were in the navy air force or whatever the navy plane part is covered i i'm not a big modern military guy um so whatever they were in the navy they were navy pilots like top gun and they apparently they have these other compatriots who are in their like squad or whatever and they have like met with mysterious accidents um in the past few weeks and months uh and they reveal that during the war presumably well it's 1939 presumably the first world war man they were flying antiques oh okay um wow um i don't know if the navy had air force back then but i mean because like planes were involved with world war one but not even to the extent that they were involved in world war two so okay but they shot down a guy so it's it's kind of not clear because a they're using 1930s language but it, it appears that this man teeter he like caused one of their compatriots to crash and he went to jail for manslaughter uh, for 10 years and he vowed revenge on these five guys because i guess i don't know they said that it was his fault or something. it's not very clear that's not important. Um, but so this guy is, has uh, sworn revenge on these five guys in the SWAT squad. And two of them have met with accidents. Well, now the math doesn't work out. Now that I'm thinking about it. When I read it, I was like, oh, okay, whatever. But there's three, including Wesley, in this situation right now. Two have been killed. And the one that they're going to go save, so that's six. That's bad math. Uh, that's bad math on Bert's part. Dang it, Bert. So the they think that their friend Steve Weber, he's flying a transport tomorrow, and um, they think he's going to get attacked. And so they paint their planes. They cover any insignias and any markings because planes have to have markings, obviously, so they are trackable and they're record recordable for flight details and stuff like that. So they cover that, and they all put on Sandman masks. Uh, and I, when I read this, I was like, oh, so the Sandman mask is a flight mask. But no, one of them mentions, or Wesley mentions, that these guys know what these are because he's they've helped him out before. And as we know, we've read all the Sandman adventures. That must be an adventure that takes place 
un you know in uh, something unpublished you know or something that doesn't exist it's just a reference to a story that happened it's like oh okay so these guys know sandman is wesley and wesley is sandman and they're fine with that uh so they all you know wear these uh salmon masks and they're the three sandmen um i'm still not entirely sure that these aren't the masks that they wore for flying that'd be that would make sense uh since they you know filter things and they have hookups for oxygen all that kind of stuff so but they um they follow their friend steve as he's flying and these four biplanes uh start to follow him the next day and they have the dog fight all these three and these four enemy planes they crash them all steve's plane gets shot in the engine and it starts on fire and he you know does a emergency landing uh everyone's fine he gets everybody out before the plane is engulfed in flames the one thing that sandman like in this story is uh when teeter lands his plane emergency lands his plane uh to run away to get away uh sandman throws a, a sleeping bomb gas bomb at him and knocks him out and he gets taken away and uh they they drop a note to steve and it's like the no need to thank us it's us the three sandmen and he knows that it's his friends and that's the end of the story a very un sandman story it fleshes out the character of wesley dodds it does but it feels like to me like it was a plot that bert chrisman was writing for some other story like there's tons of military stories coming out at this time a lot of military a lot of spy stuff it feels like a story for that and he just said well why don't i just slap wesley dodds in here um and we'll put in some reference to sandman and that'll you know which hey that happens all the time so it could really it definitely could be that could be what it is um but yeah i think i think other than other than the the fleshing out that wesley was a navy pilot um it's not it's a really forgettable and unimportant story but still that's pretty cool that uh he's becoming more of a real person all right moving on to our next issue it is superman number two released on august 22nd 1939 with a cover date of fall 1939 because the superman issues were quarterly rather than monthly like the other issues that we cover Let's just talk about this issue and issue number three. So, uh, as I stated last episode, these early Supermans are reprints of previous stories in action comics or uh, stories from the Superman comic comic strip in newspapers, newspaper strips that were originally printed in black and white and then were colored to compile into this comic book, This, this these early issues. So, we're just going to be really quick about issue number two and issue number three because these are all reprints issue number four is where we get into new stories fresh stories that have some sort of long-term bearing on superman because these early stories are very reminiscent of his early action comics stories a lot of uh fighting for peace and and helping the you know downtrodden uh which is not bad it's just not i guess as interesting as the later uh stories are with you know villains and plots and bad guys, you know, stuff like that. So we'll just go, we're going to go somewhat quickly through this and then we'll move on. So the first issue is, the first story is called uh, The Comeback of Larry Trent. And right off the bat, reading this one is very, very, very reminiscent of the story where Superman impersonates a college football player uh, in order to, to stop cheating. 
Superman does something similar to this, similar to that in this one, but it has to do with this boxer, Larry Trent. He's a former champion, world champion boxer, but his manager basically forced him to take a dive against his will. He, he His manager drugged him so that he couldn't fight properly, uh, meaning he lost. Presumably the manager put a lot of money on his opponent uh, or was paid to do it one way or the other. It doesn't say. Uh, but Superman finds him uh, in the midst of committing suicide, which is a trope that happens, feels like every single issue of Superman. Superman is stopping someone from committing suicide. Now, this issue, this story, is reprinted, obviously, so it was written much, much earlier than it's being actually published in this comic book. So it might seem like it's a trope that continues to happen, but it's really, it seems like it's a trope that was just at the beginning of writing Superman. So hopefully it goes away, because I, I just don't, it's just, I, I don't, you know, uh, as I've stated before, you know, depression stuff, it, it's it's a tough subject, uh, and it's important to to put on the forefront, but it's just kind of played out in Superman. You know, he stops them, he catches them before they hit the ground, stuff like that. And, I mean, maybe maybe that was a really, really big thing back in the day. I'm sure it was. I mean, you know, you hear about the, the 1930s stock crash, people just throwing themselves out of buildings. I guess, yeah, without, you know, social programs or access to, to good psychological assistance therapy and stuff i guess a lot of people would see the only way out as as suicide so i guess good on them for for pointing it out but gosh dang it if it is not just um a trope that they have overused but uh superman then comes up with this uh plan to impersonate larry trent and fight in all these matches to get him back to the championship and Superman does this, obviously, because he's Superman, and he beats all these other fighters really easily, too easily, I think. I think he should maybe act a little bit better, because otherwise people are going to get suspicious, I guess, about Larry Trent and not about Clark Kent, so that's good. But still, people would get suspicious, I think, because in one scene, he, like, punches, like, five guys, which is not how boxing matches work, eh? Like, it's not, like, 1v10. Um, it's 1v1 pretty much every single time. This isn't WWE. Although Superman would be really good at WWE. During the same time, Clark, uh, in his Clark Kent guise as a reporter, is, you know, like, writing these stories. Like, before they happen, um, he's putting in, you know, he's calling for a comeback for, like, Larry Trent. Like, it's news. Um, which it is, but I didn't know that Superman was, or Clark was, like, a sports writer. And also, you don't typically write about things before they happen unless it's, like, an opinion piece. Which isn't what Clark writes. Um, so he's writing all these articles about how Larry Trent is going to come back. And then, you know, he writes stories after he wins. Which brings to question the ethics of Clark Kent. In a lot of stories, he... Obviously, he's writing about himself as Superman. But a lot of the times, like, especially in these, like, three stories... Or these three stories in this Superman issue. In two of them, he writes the story before it even happens. And it's like, is that ethical to do that? To, like, write about something you're going to do because you know it's going to happen so that you can scoop the other stories? I mean, I guess they do that all the time with, like, insider information. But I don't know. It just seems really kind of unethical to, I guess, juice his own career by the stuff that he's doing as Superman. But, I mean, I guess that's the same way with Peter Parker taking pictures of Spider-Man. But he's, like, actually taking pictures of Spider-Man. Spider-Man's actually doing these things. He's not writing an article before they happen and then going out and doing it 
I don't know. It just when I was reading this, it just really struck me as like this seems unethical in in, in terms of like reporting and uh, journalism and stuff. Um, I guess a journalist would have to tell me if this would break any sort of ethical code um, that they have. Obviously, there's no set in stone ethical code for things like journalism. There's just kind of like a tried and true. You know, you don't do this, you don't do that. Just like previously in previous stories where he gave up a source, like you don't do that. You know that kind of thing. Um, there's no ethics board for journalism other than, like, libel and slander, which are laws, not ethics. Um, so moving on, uh, Superman has fought as Larry Trent, you know, so good that he's going to get the championship bout. And after the fight before the championship bout, Larry's old manager comes to Superman and asks him if he wants to be a champion again, like he wants to cha- like fight for a championship. First, Superman doesn't know who he is. He's like, who are you? Because he doesn't know who he is. And the manager takes like, okay, no, I get it. I understand. Like, you know, it ended badly. Because I don't think the manager knows that Larry knows that he was drugged. So Larry or the manager just thinks that Larry kind of, after he lost, just didn't want to talk to him anymore. But Larry knows that he was poisoned. So this manager sets it up and Superman, after he leaves the building, uh, hears him talking to another guy. They're going to do the same thing that they did last time to Larry. They're going to drug him so that he loses the fight because they're real jerks and they're, they're not nice people to Larry. Poor Larry. He's tried to kill himself. He's incredibly depressed because throughout this story, Larry is just like him and him and Superman are fighting, you know, sparring to practice. Not that Superman needs to, but Larry's just like, you know, he's just like, oh, I don't really see the point in fighting. Like, I'm feeling low. Like, he has depression. Like, let's not, let's not beat around the bush. We can speak in 21st century parlance about this 1930s uh, era problem. He has depression. Um, uh, he could get some medication, some talk therapy and, and fix it. Or he could um, have a superhero pretend to be him and help him get his confidence back, which works too. You know, it works in the end. Larry talks to Superman and is like, hey, you know, you winning all these fights and, you know, can fight the championship as me. Doesn't that kind of make it a hollow victory for me, Larry Trent? Doesn't it kind of make me feel like a seem like a fraud? And Superman's like, oh, OK, I, I hear you. Well, then you're going to fight in the championship bout. And Larry's like, what, me? Um, it doesn't take very much convincing. So he's like, OK, I'm going to do it because they've been, you know, they've been sparring. He's been getting back into form. So then Larry is fighting the championship bout. And also, this brings me back, before before we get into that, Clark turns in an article saying that Larry Trent wins the championship. Um, like, this is bad. Like, if I was his editor, I'd be like, uh, we're not going to run this. Like, you're going to have to change this if this is not true. Like, we're not going to run it the day before or anything like that. Because, uh, funnily enough, uh, this happened in real life, uh, if you did not know. Uh, Harry S. Truman, when he was running for election after serving... As president after the death of FDR, a paper, I can't remember what paper it is, probably like the Washington Post, something set in D.C., I believe, printed that Dewey, uh, who is his opponent in the election, won. And so there's this famous picture of Harry S. Truman holding up a newspaper that says Dewey defeats Truman on the day that he that it was announced that Truman won the election. So this that hasn't happened yet. So this is kind of like a funny sort of. Uh, foretelling of like what the newspaper industry like I understand like it would take time to like rewrite and all this kind of stuff Uh, you'd have to like what but like that happens all the time you a thing happens and you have to quickly write it and then you know get it to the presses I I don't think that it should be okay for Clark to be like okay I've written my story I've decided what happens um, so it's fine 
uh, don't worry, he's going to win. Like, that seems unethical again. Like, we're talking about his journalist ethics, but it just really struck me as like, you can't do that. Or you shouldn't do that. That's that's bad journalism. Wait until the event happens. Type it as fast as you can. Get to the presses. And, you know, may the may the quickest paper win. But so he has put this in that Larry is going to win the, the championship. Um, and if if they get it wrong, they will be laughing stocks. which like just hate. Just don't run it. Then, George, like, George, you don't have to do whatever Clark wants you to do. You know, you're the editor. You're the boss. You could say, mm, we're going to hold it until, you know, if it actually comes to pass. And if it doesn't come to pass, you're going to have to rewrite it. But no, he just says, like, oh, OK, I guess we'll print it. I don't have any choice. I- I'm not in charge. Oh, wait, you are in charge, George. But so back to the fight. Larry is fighting. He's doing well. So it's in between rounds. And his manager comes up and is like, here, you know, drink this. It's not Gatorade. It looks like like a bottle of like alcohol, which I mean, I guess keep you loose. But maybe just drink some water. You're doing physical activity. And Larry's like, no, I don't want it. No, I don't want it. And then, you know, his manager is pushing and pushing for him to drink it. And Superman then grabs as Superman um, grabs this man, the manager and makes him drink it. And he runs away crying and like because he's going to die. He's been poisoned or whatever. Larry wins the fight, and Clark is, you know, pat on the back. Good job. Good journalism by writing about a thing that hadn't happened yet in such great detail. They, they say that. In such great detail. How did you know what was going to happen in the fight? Superman winks at the camera and is like, I'll never tell. So, yeah. So the next story uh, in Superman number two is titled Superman Champions Universal Peace. Um, so this one involves, so first Clark is sent to uh, interview this doctor, the scientist who has just, has created this poisonous gas that is so, like the particles in the gas are so small that it can even go through gas masks. Which like, this man should go to jail. This is a terrible thing to invent. But you know, military contractors are like, give me the upper hand so I can kill those guys better. We all know how it works. So, you know, Sue, Clark does this, does his article, and then as he's leaving... He overhears, like, through walls with superhearing um, thugs threatening Dr. Runyon. And rather than, you know, put on his Superman guys quickly and fight these thugs who are, you know, threatening Dr. Runyon and attempting to steal his formula, he just follows them, as Clark Kent. Uh, they give they give the doctor 24 hours to turn over the secret formula. They just say, or else, I'm assuming, kill him. Um, and he does later. Spoiler, spoiler alert for, you know, like, two minutes from now when I say it, he does get murdered. Uh, Superman then follows these racketeers uh, to this farmhouse with a airstrip next to it because every farmhouse needs an airstrip. If you have a farmhouse and you don't have an airstrip, what are you even doing? Uh, Superman then, he's got a day job to do. He goes back and he writes an article about his interview with Dr. Runyon about his terrible gas that Clark watched kill a monkey. That was a te- that was what you know, he couldn't just take Doctor Runyon's word for it. Doctor Runyon was like, "No, no, 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 no. Let me show you. Um, here's this innocent monkey. I put a gas mask on him. He looks a lot like Sandman. If Sandman was a a monkey, Superman's like, who's that? We don't have like connectivity in our universes yet. It's like, oh, okay, sorry, I forgot. Uh, Sandman is this other superhero. Oh, cool. So they put a gas mask on a monkey, and then they gas the monkey, and it goes through the gas mask, and they kill the monkey. Cause like you couldn't just take his word for it." So cool. So pointless animal murder. That's always great. Uh, so, so Clark goes back and writes up his article. He turns it in. George is like, um, good job, Clark, as usual. Uh, and then uh, George gets a phone call 
he's been informed that Dr. Runyon's been murdered. What? Clark, why didn't you, like, I don't know, watch Dr. Runyon and prevent this murder from happening? Too busy typing. Lost track of time. Ugh, Clark. For shame. Clark then turns into Superman and goes to that farmhouse that he clocked earlier. He overhears um, the, the thugs talking about going, taking the formula to Barovia, which is a country that is in the midst of civil war. It is a made-up country, uh, much like uh, Bialia and, um, oh, what's the Eastern European one that Count Vertigo's from? Markov. Nope, that's, never mind. Markovia. There we go. This one is different, though. Barovia stopped existing in the 1950s in DC Universe, so it's not important. Uh, they get in their plane and they use their handy dandy personal airstrip uh, because you gotta have one. See, this is the this is the perfect. If you're doing racketeering work, you gotta have an airstrip. Superman jumps on the plane, uh, opens it up like a, a can opener, and jumps inside and you know threatens them all like, "Give me the formula! Give me the formula!" Uh, and the leader jumps out of the plane with a with a parachute. He's got the formula, and Superman jumps out of the plane as well with no parachute because he's cool. He kind of free free dives down and grabs onto this guy as he's parachuting and says i'll cut these ropes if if you don't if you don't do what i say because superman loves to threaten once they get to the ground the guy gives him the formula but he says that that the the people who hired him lubane uh, already has a vial of it i don't know how but maybe they like telegraphed ahead and said here's the formula but like we'll bring you the actual formula it doesn't really make sense um, then uh, one of the sides of the Civil War in Barovia, their military finds Superman, and they you know, try to stab him with bayonets, and then a plane drops a bomb on him, and he's still alive. Don't know how it didn't kill the other guys around him, but it must have been just like pinpoint accuracy bomb. They carry him, and they're just like, no trial. Going to shoot you by firing squad. Uh, they fail, of course. Uh, and they think they have funny. A funny part is they think that they like they keep shooting Superman and nothing happens to him. So they think that their guns must be loaded with blanks. So one to test it shoots himself in the foot, and um, it does work. It's a real bullet. Uh, that's not the way you shouldn't do that to test for blanks. Just so you know, just like PSA, um, don't do that. Just, like shoot something else, an inanimate object, you know, preferably. Uh, then Superman is on his way to, um, uh, Lubain, but on his way, he's going to destroy, destroy some war munitions, you know, some, some bombs, some cannons, some dirigibles, uh, you know, classic Superman stuff. He gets to Lubain's office. Uh, Lubain threatens to break the vial and, and unleash the gas and Superman's like, knock it off and tries to take it from him. Lubain drops it. The gas, you know, envelops the room. Uh, Lubain dies. Superman doesn't, of course. And then Superman goes to the government of Barovia, and they're doing peace talks because Superman hates war, as I do, as I do too. I hate war as well. I mean, he's like, you guys need to make peace. And they're like, never. These guys are asking too much. And the other side says the same. Uh, so Superman destroys all but one of the load-bearing uh, pillars in this building. And he threatens them uh, to, to make peace or else he will destroy the building and kill them all uh, because that's the best way to get to peace, threaten people's lives. If it works, it works, you know, and it does work. They, they, they you know, make peace. I'm sure it's lasting, too. I'm sure it lasts for a long time. 
And then, you know, Superman wires uh, ahead and, and telegraphs like, hey, the Civil War is over and I'm coming back with the murderers of Dr. Runyon. Don't ask me how I got to Barovia. Okay, I know that just just like earlier today I was in I was in town and stuff uh, and now I'm in Barovia. Don't ask any questions because isn't that weird? Like one like the beginning of the day he is, you know, doing he's doing newspaper stuff. He gets a call and then. Like, maybe 24 hours later, it's like, hey, I'm in Barovia now, and the Civil War is over, and I'm coming back with the murders of R Dr. Runyon. Okay, not suspicious, not weird at all. No questions asked. He's just, he's, he's welcomed back with, you know, open arms. Uh, everyone's like, good job, you did it. Uh, and then at the end, uh, he destroys the formula. So, um, a weird story, um, but very much, like, in line with the early Supermans that we have read because I mean previously Superman went and made peace it's kind of it's almost like just another rehashing of the war in Del Monte um, or El Monte something like that uh, in the earlier in like an early early issue of ish of action comics which makes sense you know they're like hey we you know we did the war story once before let's kind of change it a little bit always thinking about war you know uh, after the after the great war war is on everybody's mind um, even though it was you know 15 years ago at this time. Uh, so the next, the last story of this Superman issue is uh, Superman and the Skyscrapers. Uh, and it's a very short story, about, I think, like nine pages. Very short for a Superman story. Uh, so Superman is, you know, out patrolling, and he, um, well, actually, sorry, it starts off with uh, a man falls off of this construction of this building, this big, 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 tall skyscraper. And it's five deaths in five days is, is what's happening. So Superman's going to go investigate. And he goes there at night and he finds this guy who's rigging it up uh, with explosives. Or kind of sabotaging the thing, you know, like sawing supports and stuff like that. Um, it's really funny. He's got, this, he's got this hacksaw and he's trying to cut an I-beam. Um, I-beams are huge and incredibly tough. I think you're going to need more than just a little metal saw guy. But people who do this kind of work aren't bright. So Superman, you know, gets the jump on him. You know, he tries to shoot Superman as he does. He falls. Superman makes it to the ground before him, catches him before he dies, and then says, hey, who hired you? And he's like, Butch Groban. Sorry, Butch Grogan. Uh, so Superman goes to Butch Grogan's house the next day, threatens his, uh, not butler, but just a guy who's there. I think maybe his butler. He's like, you know, hey, tell me what, tell me what I want to know. Where's Butch? Where's Butch? Where's Butch? He throws the guy up in the air really high a bunch of times to scare him. You know, while Superman's doing this, Butch arrives. So it's like you could have just waited. You didn't have to threaten the guy. Uh, Butch has a gun. Tries to shoot Superman again. Everyone's trying to shoot Superman. Superman breaks the gun as usual. Then he, he kind of gets Butch to give up that uh, another rival construction company is sabotaging this skyscraper in order to put that rival construction company out of business butch turn or um superman turns butch over to the police butch you know kind of escapes their clutches quickly like runs away to make a call to the head of this other company that hired him and then the the police catch up with him and they said hey don't stop or i'll shoot you and butch tries to run away and then they shoot him to death I guess, I mean, I guess it's good to know that American cops are consistent throughout the years. They're like, mm, this man's running away. What should I do? Should I shoot him in the leg? Should I shoot him, you know, a warning shot? Should I just give chase? 
Uh, no, let's shoot to kill. So, all right. Cool. So Superman goes to the house of this other company's owner, and this man has locked himself in a safe house and rigged his house to explode, which seems a bit drastic. So Superman, you know, kind of brushes off all these explosives, busts through, and then threatens the guy to uh, confess, which, again, is a confession by coercion. It is not admissible in court. Uh, so Superman basically does nothing. But guess what? The Daily Star does print that Grayson was convicted. So I guess we have to believe that he was convicted, even though his confession was coerced. George says, good job as usual. And see, here we go. You handled, so at the end, George is like, you handled the, the Grayson trial beautifully, but how did you manage to learn of his arrest before the other papers? Just luck, chief. Oh, and the assistance of Superman. So I guess he's using it like Superman's, you know, giving him the dirt. It still seems, it's again, I know I've, you know, beaten this horse to death. Sorry, beaten this dead horse. But like, it seems unethical. It just seems unethical. Because like other, other reporters are probably out there, you know, pounding the pavement, making the calls checking their sources and and clark's just like yeah i'll just do some superman stuff and write about it whatever so yeah that's superman number two i actually spent a lot more time on it than i was planning to um because the stories aren't bad they're just they're kind of rehashing things that have already been hashed by earlier action comics issues i mean still good stories jerry siegel and joe schuster they they write good stories uh, moving on to our next issue is Action Comics number 17, released August 31st, 1939, with a cover date of October 1939. And this story, this it's, it's Superman Zatara, as usual. It will be Superman Zatara for many decades. So I'm going to stop saying that it's Superman Zatara in this one. The Superman story is titled, now this is going to be spoilers, so if you don't want spoilers for, you know, the next five 10-15 minutes. Close your ears for about 10 seconds. Now, the title of the story is uh, The Return of the Ultra Human Knight. Okay, people who didn't want spoilers, you can unplug your ears now. Oh, but wait, you can't hear that. Hopefully you counted. Uh, so, this story starts out with a radio operator being informed that, or not a radio operator, a radio operator on board a ship called the clarion which like oh that's fun i doubt it has anything to do with clarion the witch boy um a lord of chaos a super powerful magic user who's like a 12 year old boy who uh, an ageless 20 12 year old boy who has a cat uh, an evil cat named tickle um who's a fun character but i doubt that you know when they were coming up with the name it's like oh, what was the name of that ship in that one-off Superman story from Action Comics 17. Uh, I doubt that. I think that's just maybe a coincidence. But a fun coincidence nonetheless. Uh, so this uh, operator, radio operator aboard the ship is calling for help because the ship has stopped. Uh, the engines have stopped and there's a fire that's broken out in the ship. And there, and it's it, the seas, like it's like storming out. It's not great weather. Uh, so Superman, or not Superman, Clark Kent is put on uh, the job to go report on the story as it's happening, um, even though it's a newspaper, so, you know, it won't be, people won't get the news until, you know, like, the next day, but got to report on it while it's happening. Uh, he gets there, and they, he, he finds out that the Coast Guard is sending out, um, a ship, or a boat, it's a boat, um, with some Coast Guardsmen in a rowboat, uh, not a, not a motor-powered boat, because I don't know how prevalent, smaller boats are with motors at this point it's 1939 cars exist i feel like they could have used a boat with a motor 
But maybe, you know, a rowboat is better for, like, combating big waves. Uh, I don't know. If there's any nautical people out there, you know, phone in and tell me what's what. Uh, so these these Coast Guardsmen, uh, they are rowing and rowing, but they get capsized and killed by a, a big wave. And uh, then we come to a point where uh, Clark's like, okay, I've got to become Superman now. And he says, it's time for Superman to take a hand before more lives are uselessly sacrificed. You could have done that before. Like, you could have, like, right when you got there, been like, okay, th- this is the water's way too choppy for them. That's just Superman this. No standing around is Clark Kent. But he didn't. Uh, so he let all these Coast Guardsmen die. He could have gone out there to save them. You know, if he was already Superman, he could have gone out there to save them. But uh, he didn't. So he let a bunch of people die. Good job, Superman. Chalk that one up as a success. So he swims out there. Um, everyone's shocked. Like, oh, my God, a man. He's swimming through these terrible waves. And he gets on board the ship, and he, everyone's freaking out, and he tells them all to calm down, calm down. He slaps them all in the face a few times, every single one of them just... And he's... The captain's injured, and there's a fire, and he gets everybody to start working together and start putting out this fire. It's not working. Superman grabs a hose and just runs straight into the, the heart of the fire, and he's putting it out, and he's putting it out, and he puts it out, and he gets out, and everyone's shocked, like, oh my god, he's still alive. We all thought he'd be dead. And then uh, one of the first mates, well, the first mate, comes and says that they're trapped on rocks and they sprung a leak, so they're going to sink. So Superman dives into the water. Everyone thinks he's committing suicide. He's like, they're just like, ah, man, he's got the right idea. We can't make it out. Time to kill ourselves. He's not committing suicide, just so everyone knows. He's getting behind the boat and he's going to push it to shore. And he does that until it gets, you know, he beaches it on some bigger rocks closer to shore. The Coast Guard shoots a like a line out there, and then everyone kind of zip lines from the ship to the shore. Uh, Superman's suspicious of this, though, the why this would happen. So he asks, uh, the next day he goes, and there's investigators are going about to get on the ship, and he says, hey, can I come along? I'm a reporter. And rather than, you know, trying to stop reporters for whatever reason, which, like, a lot of them do now, they're like, sure, come along. And inside they find a bunch of, like, flammable materials and, and stuff, and it looks like sabotage. So that day, Clark goes to the Deering Lines, which is the owner of the Clarion, the ship that was sabotaged. And he does this thing again where, like, if he doesn't mention his worriedness about being found out as Superman, he can just do any Superman act that he wants, like... Um, he just like lifts a guy over his head like he's nothing to to get in to the the head honcho's office. It's like someone's gonna be suspicious of that. You lifted him up like he weighed nothing, but he didn't think about it. So Superman's dilemma, you know. Schrodinger's Superman. So he he talks to the head honcho, and the the head honcho tells him that they're being blackmailed, and they're being well not blackmailed. They're sort of being I guess threatened. Uh, so they've been paying off these, they've been paying these people because their ships have been being sabotaged. Um, and rather than talk about it because it's bad, it's bad business to be like, you know, if you get on a Deering line ship, it could be sabotaged and you could sink. So they've been keeping it hush hush. But uh, they get a call while, Su- while Clark Kent is in the office and um, he listens in on an extension. And the sort of saboteurs call in, they say, you know, give pay us $5 million or we'll keep sabotaging your ships, even though it's like, well, I've been paying you money and you keep sabotaging my ships anyways. Um, so that doesn't really seem cool. Clark, it, it, he's like, ah, oh, this sounds, the voice sounds fam- familiar. 
It's like, ah, I can't put my finger on it. And after the f- call is done, he calls into the operator or the police or whatever and says, I, I need you to trace this call because the call that just came in. Because, like, apparently you can do that just like every normal person. So I guess Star 67. Star 67, yeah. That, you know, you could get the callback number or whatever. But I can But tracing it, that seems a little bit more like like a regular person shouldn't be able to do that. Like doxing. Even though, you know, back in this day, people just put down their addresses and their phone numbers in a book that everybody got a copy of. So it was a lot easier to, quote unquote, dox someone because they just put their address out there. But the the operator says that it, according to their records, no phone call has been called to that office in, in, in the last several minutes. So like, whoa. Hmm. So, you know, the, the boss says he's going to pay it because he's got to because it'll ruin the business otherwise. And Clark leaves and he's like, man, I, I feel like I feel like the voice was of that ultra humanite mad scientist guy who wants to dominate the world. And then at that moment, some thugs catch or grab on to Clark Kent. And, you know, they rough him up and they throw him out of a moving car. And then he turns into Superman, chases after him, lifts the car up, jumps onto a skyscraper and puts them onto the skyscraper rather than just like following them back to their hideout, um, which is what he's done in the past. I guess, you know, variety in, in methods. So he puts their car on top of a skyscraper um, and then I guess they have to walk back to the base. Uh, it's revealed that it is the ultra humanite who is behind it. He looks very Lex luthor He's gotten, previously he's had sort of a horseshoe of hair around the sides and, you know, he's like completely bald on top. Now he's like completely bald. He looks just like Lex Luthor. I'm wondering when that will change because it feels like I'm a person that doesn't have any hair. Let's just put that out there. I, I started going bald very young. And I, I think that uh, all the villains, like being bald, is bald slander. And I won't stand for it. Okay? That's not cool. So the Ultra Humanite uses his wireless technology. He's basically discovered how to make cellular device calls with a big machine uh, and calls the boss of the Deering Lines and says, bring um, $5 million to this address. And luckily, 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 that word, that word does a lot of work in these stories. Superman just happens to be hanging from the, the window outside of Deering Lines' his office, and he can hear it. Uh, so he goes to the address, and he's like, aha, ultra-humanite, I've got you, I'm going to foil your plans. The ultra-humanite's, well, I'm going to shoot you with this acid gun, and I'm pretty sure it'll burn through even your hard skin. Uh, so Superman rushes the Ultra Humanite. There's an invisible barrier, and it's revealed that it's a panel of transparent, unbreakable metal, a creation of his own. Man, transparent metal. It feels like something that wouldn't be possible, but like maybe it would be, but I, I doubt it. Like You can't be both transparent and incredibly hard. I mean, I guess you can, like bulletproof glass. Hmm, interesting. Maybe that exists. I could, maybe not so far-fetched. Uh, Superman then, you know, he kind of, he gets a, like, a little running start and busts through the wall, lunges at the Ultra Humanite, and it turns out it was just a hologram the whole time. The Ultra Humanite wasn't even here. It's like, whoa, the Ultra Humanite is so smart. You get in the upper hand on Superman, getting all this technology, uh, that can, you know, thwart Superman's not being super smart. And then Superman kind of brings the guys to justice and then writes a story on the sabotage, and he's just like, huh. The ultra-humanite got away. Ah, he beat me. But he's like, at least I thwarted their plan for sabotage. Even though, like, did he? Can't, can't the ultra-humanite just find more thugs? Sabotage the ship some more? 
and continue to do that from a different locations. You didn't really do anything except for, I guess, arrest some thugs, some nameless thugs. Like, you didn't actually do anything, really. Uh, the plans can continue. Um, but I guess anything for you know, Clark Kent to pat himself on the back. And one last thing uh, in the story, which I, I found weird. They don't refer to the Ultra Humanite as the Ultra Humanite in the story at all. They refer to him as Ultra with quotes around it. Uh, I don't know why. It, 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 it's, it seems more silly to call him Ultra. Sometimes in these early comics, comic books kind of get embarrassed about being comic books, which embrace it, you know, embrace the weirdness, embrace the weirdness that a guy calls himself the ultra humanite rather than like a normal person name. Uh, that's what I think, at least. So, yeah, moving on to the Zatara story. And boy, is it some story. Um, oh. Oof. OK, so a couple action comics ago. Zatara went on an adventure for the Fountain of Youth. We all remember this, yes? And in it, uh, he just did a lot of things, uh, not nice things, to native people, indigenous people of, of the Amazon for really no reason. And the, the, the vocabulary used was incredibly offensive. Obviously, it's 1939, and they were quite racist back then. I mean, still a lot of racism today, but um, a lot more acceptable racism back then. Um, so this next story, prefer, you know, just like prepare yourself, is so incredibly racist. I thought at first it was like, okay, this is just like normal levels of racism for 1939s, but boy is it quite, quite a story. Uh, so it starts off, uh, Zatara is taking his yearly vacation to Europe because he normally he's such a homebody. He normally just spends all of his time in a, at his apartment practicing his magic. He never travels the world every single month. Um, so, but he needed a he needed a vacation because he's just so tired, uh, and he meets uh, a law you know an old acquaintance, uh, Beth Jordan. She's like, oh, as I live and breathe, um, if it isn't Beth Jordan. Uh, and at that moment, a net is thrown over uh, them both, and Zatara. They they are sticking with backwards words for the spells, which is good. I think they might have just in, just gotten tired of coming up with fake magic sounding words which i'm all for because i think it's really clever to be like say it backwards and it's magic so i'm not gonna do the thing that i did last uh issue uh and all the issues that i've had backwards uh spells because i it's you know unless unless everybody likes that and i'll, I'll keep doing it but uh so he, t he turns the net into golden coins uh could have picked something softer maybe but um you know he says to the heck with the World Bank. I'm going to put more money into the money supply. So there. Uh, he talks with Beth and her husband, John. It's like, hey, do you guys have any enemies? Like, why would they, why would that net? And John's like, oh, it's probably just a mistake. You know, probably just an accident by a, a, a sailor or a child. Uh, and they get off the boat and Zatara clocks this gentleman. Uh, he is black. Uh, he is drawn in a very racist way, staring at them menacingly. And the Jordans say, oh, you should, we should have dinner tonight, catch up. And he's like, oh, yes, would you like to go to this French restaurant? Because I think they are in, they're in Le Havre, they're in France. So they, they're at the restaurant that night, and standing really, really close to the window outside is that same guy, staring in menacingly. Zatara turns him into stone, killing him, basically, and I guess hires some guys to bring him to his hotel room. <laughs> so that's weird. Um, I guess maybe he's going to interrogate him later. But he doesn't have a chance because this man's associates attack Zatara and the Jordans and kidnap them. 
and put them aboard a ship out to sea. Then, um, I mean, they they are all tied up and like they so they say, do not try to escape. You know, as you'll, you won't be harmed as long as you don't try to escape. But then the Jordans untie themselves and they untie Zatara and like nothing happens to them. So I, I these like this entire page, I, I feel is basically pointless other than being like, oh, why are we here? We don't know. No one knows. Let's try to get the upper hand. And then they don't try to get the upper hand. Uh, Zatara plays a prank on a guy by turning all the food on his tray huge or not huge. Oh, yeah. Turns it turns it big and then turns it into gold coins again. Zatara's just really got money on the mind. He's got his mind on his money and his money on his mind. Uh, so they've been you know, on board ship for several days and they have not been harmed, I guess. They haven't tried to escape. They reach the coast of Africa and then they're then put on board a plane. Uh, and I guess it's the it's a fabled city, Ophir, O-P-H-I-R. It's fabled, but um, Zatara can pick it out from an airplane window. It's like, oh yeah, yep, that's definitely Ophir. And maybe he's using magic knowledge, it doesn't say. Um, but it's also very convenient that he just happens to know. It's the wealthiest city of the entire world, ancient or modern. But, I mean, from seeing it, like, okay, sure, the the, the castle and stuff looks nice. But all of the guards are wearing, like, medieval armor, like, chainmail. They all look like um, Shining Knight, uh, which is a character that we haven't been introduced to yet, but should be in the next few years. Uh, they all look like Shining Knight, and they're all using, like, spears and bows and arrows. Like, you'd think it's 1939, and they're the wealthiest country city in the world, ancient or modern. Like, why don't they have guns? Why don't they have super advanced technology? It's weird. I mean, I guess because they're black and from Africa, so they're not allowed to be advanced so cool Z- Z- zatara then plays a does a thing they're like don't move and he's like okay well what if my clothes move and he's like uh clothes take a walk with his magic and his clothes just start to walk away where does he go i don't know he disappears into the spirit world i guess naked no because he still has clothes so he duplicates his. it doesn't make sense it's a pointless it's pointless and then he like i don't know he, he plays like a he does like turns the stone into like waves so then he's not captured anymore he could have just disappeared uh, it, it the, all that stuff was pointless zatara is following this trail of the captor the captors and and the captured jordans and they're introduced to the queen uh setap um she looks like a very racist depiction of a black person and she's wearing a, a fancy robe and she says that she's lived for hundreds of years because the ancient Ophirians blessed her with eternal youth, but her youth is, or like um, immortality, but her immortality is like running out or something, or she's like aging still. But it just so happens that Beth Jordan has the blood of the ancients in her, so they're going to transfuse her blood into Setap in order to transfer the magic from her ancient blood. And along with this, Setap is going to release flor- Floridus gas, Floridus gas, in every country and kill everybody and then she'll rule the world well everybody will be dead so you'll rule no one other than your country of a fear so uh weird choice of plan this is this is never mentioned again her world domination plan uh john jordan is is captured and chained to a wall uh zatara comes and uh pins the guard to the ceiling and then turns the chains to silk and jordan busts out and then they sneak into the room where the transfusion is happening and this is where the super racist thing happens. So just uh, be careful, or not be careful, just prepare yourself. Setap 
you know, is so old and so ancient that she can, you know, I guess, like, sense Zatara sneaking in, or maybe Zatara's just bad at sneaking, and she throws some sort of liquid at him, and it blinds him, um, and that makes his magic useless, because he's like, yeah, I can't see. If only I could see, I could do magic. I don't know, just do magic. Like, do something. He does nothing. So they go send uh, Zatara to go get burned alive, and uh, they are going to put John Jordan into the Tower of Silence. Uh, so now they do the... Um, the blood transfusion. And uh, this is what happens. So they transfuse Beth Jordan's blood into Setap. Uh, Beth Jordan changes to look very, very old. And um, uh, Setap turns into a young, um, I guess in comics terms, probably attractive white woman with blonde, long blonde hair, where previously she had no hair and was black. Um, so that's that racial undertone is more like a racial overtone, in my opinion. Um, so, but moving on, moving past that, um, like not moving past it, but like it's out there. There's nothing else to say about it. It's incredibly racist, like just cut and dry uh, to, to, to say that, you know, being young and, and beautiful is being white and blonde and old and ugly is being black and having no hair. Uh, so, yeah. So, Zatara is being burned alive, but uh, the heat has made him, like, sweat and cry, and it's washed his eyes out so he can he can use his magic to call on a make a rain cloud and, and put out the fire. And then he, like, calls all the doors to him for some reason so there's no more doors and there's no more chains and locks in the building. And then he tells the building to disintegrate with magic. And so all the bricks like start to fly away. Which is not what disintegrate means. But okay. The Tower of Silence I guess is just a pole. That John is on. Like he's at the top of a pole. Why wasn't he? Why wouldn't he just slide down? It's not mentioned. Why? It's weird. And John's like, "How do I get down? H- help me!" And uh, Zatara uses magic and says, "Take the elevator." And so then a floating elevator appears next to John Jordan, and he gets in there. And he's like, "Well, I'll be darned." Uh, they free Beth Jordan from her jail cell where she's old and ugly. So like Beth doesn't want to go because she's like, "John will think I'm hideous. He can't see me like this." So then. Zatara's like, oh, have John look at her like she's beautiful. I guess, okay. <sighs> like, just get your priorities in check. We're, we're going to fix this. Uh, at that moment, Setap is calling down from her ancient gods of, of ancient Ophir to blast Zatara. But before, I guess, that can happen, he just says, hey, come down here. And she's like, okay. Then he calls on the flame of, uh, of eternity from Atlantis. Okay, it appears... He uses it to reverse the blood transfusion magic. So now Beth Jordan is now back to her normal self, and Setap is now back to her old self, and she's no longer a young white lady. And then then Zatara just leaves. Like, him and the Jordans just leave Setap there. I guess, like, he's, quote-unquote, disintegrated her palace. But I guess that must include the Floridus gas. Because otherwise it's like, um, hey, she still has, like, a ton of poisonous gas. And he's like, well, she's like, well, someday we'll meet again. And he's like, well, yeah, maybe we will sometime soon. It's like, okay, Zatara, do you want to maybe stop any possibilities of her evil plan happening? Nah, I just want to leave. It's like, okay, Zatara. That's the end. That's the end of it. 
I don't know if I can say much more about it. It's it's it, it's a non a lot of pointless things in this story, um, a lot of racism, obviously, and uh, it kind of doesn't really get wrapped up. Like they they mention a sort of subplot of of world domination, but they don't resolve that in any way. Uh, not great, not great Zatara stories. These Zatara stories are are really really encroaching into, um, just like being pointlessly offensive. Um, at the time, I guess it wouldn't be considered offensive to anyone who was white. I don't know. Uh, we'll just we'll just move on. We'll just move move uh move past that. So. All right, and our final issue of the episode is going to be Detective Comics number 32. So Detective Comics number 32 was released on September 12th, 1939, with a cover date of October 1939. Very fitting, very spooky for getting near the spooky time season of Halloween. We last left the Batman. He he had thwarted the monk's plans to get julia bruce wayne's fiance under his thrall for whatever reason like he's like ah there's no women in hungary i have to go all the way to new york for some reason um it's not clear he just he saw a picture of julia in the newspaper maybe and uh, he's like oh dang time to be a stalker so superman not superman sorry (laughs) batman is swinging through the trees of hungary chasing after this carriage and he lands on top of it Gasses the occupants, throws the driver off a cliff, killing him. Uh, another kill for Batman, mark it down. And inside, he thought it was going to be the monk, but it's not. It's a lady uh, in a cloak. And he gets her up in the Batplane and flies her to his hotel deep in the Carlathan Mountains of Hungary. So he brings her to his hotel room where Julie is located. And this woman says her name is Dala. And she doesn't say anything about who she is or where she's from, but it's... Uh, she's like, I, Batman kidnapped me, I guess. I don't know. Like any good person watching over someone who is in danger and has also just kidnapped someone who he thinks might be affiliated with the person that's trying to kidnap the person that he's protecting, he puts them both in the same hotel room and then sits outside the door. Because uh, windows, vampires never come in through the window. And then in the middle of the night, the door opens and Dala it seems to be sleepwalking out possibly under the mind control of the monk. Batman kind of guides her back into um, the room and to check on Julie, and she stops pretending to be hypnotized and knocks Batman out. And then when he awakes, he notices bite marks on Julie's neck, and he says he, he sees Dala running away from the window, and he says, I should have known, never should have trusted her, just wait. And he swings through and, and captures her again, and she's like, and he's like, talk, you witch. You're uh, you're an accomplice of the monk. Uh, you're You guys are vampires. And so then she says, oh, you want to know where the monk is? Are you afraid of him? Well, I am too. Don't kill me and I'll tell you where he is. Because I'm so afraid for my life. And Batman's like, all right, I'll judge of that. Uh, and I trust, and I'll trust you this again. Even though you just betrayed me. And she's like, great. He lives in the lost mountains of the Cathala. Uh, by the river dress, sorry, river Des. Batman says to Julie, I'll be back soon. Here's some money, just in case, I guess. And him and Dala get into the bat plane. It's now called the bat plane, not the uh, bat gyro. So they just said, let's just call it a bat plane. You know, it's a plane, looks like a bat. It's also a helicopter, though. So I guess bat gyro also works. Uh, so they're flying. They're flying towards the where the monk lives. Uh, and a magical silver net uh, comes out from nowhere and pulls the bat plane down. And wouldn't you know it, 
Wouldn't you know it? Dollop betrayed Batman again. Who would who would have seen this coming? Certainly not Batman. It's like you just you just betrayed me. I trust you again immediately. So he's betrayed and captured and hypnotized by the monk underneath his powers. And Dalla says, wait, before we kill him, we should bring Julie here so that she has to watch and he has to watch her become a part of us. And this is where it gets confusing. So they're going to turn uh, Julie into a werewolf, but they're vampires. Um, not They're not going to turn her into a vampire. Uh, so that's weird. I don't know why they wouldn't turn her into a vampire, like a vampire thrall. So that's weird. Uh, but they throw Batman into a pit and they send out for some wolves or werewolves or something. They, they use wolf and werewolf interchangeably, even though we both know that those, well, we both, we all know that they're completely different things. Uh, so Batman's in there. He wakes up as he's falling into the pit and tries to lasso um, a convenient peg to climb out, but he can't. He gasses the werewolves to knock them out. Uh, the old tried and true. And then he's trying, he spends hours trying to throw his really light but strong rope up, but it's too light, can't reach it, too high. It's like, ah, man, if only something heavy was on the end of it, or like it was attached to some sort of gun that shot it out. Maybe someday. So the, the wolves are beginning to wake up again, and Batman gasses them and pulls out a battering and ties his rope to it and throws it. It's like, oh, wow, hefty thing on the end? That works a lot better. Uh, wraps it around the pole and climbs out. Um, and this is where this story sort of comes to a not so, I guess, climactic end, if that's the right phrase, like exciting end. It's kind of actually quite a boring ending. So he finds Julie sleeping in a bed, you know, not at a locked door or anything. She's just sleeping. Uh, the vampires are like, you know what, you can just sleep. And then he finds a silver statue. And then he says, only a silver bullet may, may kill a vampire. It's like, no, that's not even right at all. Like... Bram Stoker's Dracula, I believe, is out at this point because the the Dracula movie has been made. So that means that Bram, because I believe Bram Stoker's Dracula is from like the 1800s. Um, I could be wrong about that. It's been a while since I've read it. Um, it's definitely, well, I guess, no, it's definitely out at this point. So like they know all of the things that at least Bram Stoker has kind of put out that, I mean, was Silver, can Silver kill a vampire in Bram Stoker's? Maybe, and maybe I'm maybe I'm just conflating it as not being ever a possibility. But it just like silver bolts are for werewolves, wooden stakes and stuff are for vampires. But maybe they both work, and maybe I'm just being dumb. But so he melts down the silver statue because the vampires are sleeping during the day, which is another thing. Like why can't they be up? but inside but they're sleeping conveniently um so batman forges two silver bullets and shoots them both and kills them and that's the end uh, they don't put up a fight or anything it's uh, actually a pretty bad ending in my opinion so yeah so that's that's the batman story from detective comics number 32 and that is where we're going to wrap it up this time i hope you all enjoyed uh the stories are getting better and worse and they're getting continuity but they're also kind of rehashing things from the past in the case of the Superman issues. But uh, overall, I think we're moving in a good direction. We're making progress. If you want to reach out to the show, you can reach out on Instagram and Twitter at Instagram at Issue Issue Podcast. That's where I post all the the primo panels from all the issues that we covered uh, this week. I usually post about two a day because trust me, there are no lack of primo panels in any one of these issues. You know, just just 
pick one and you can find at least one panel that's like, that's weird or like, that's interesting or here's something cool. Uh, so I post that there. Twitter, I don't really have much on there. Um, obviously, I don't really have like any goings on or anything of the podcast, but um, I should try to be better about Twitter. And uh, be sure to, you know, get out there and rate and review podcast on iTunes. Sorry, not iTunes, Apple Podcasts and Spotify and any other apps that uh, allow you to rate and review podcasts because it really helps out the show. Uh, and in that same vein, uh, I'm going to shout out a review that we uh, just recently got. Uh, five stars from Dusty Ray 85 He says, uh, glad to find this podcast. It's something that I'd hope to find. That's why I'm doing this, you know? I'm doing it for me because I want to read these comics, these early comics, but I'm also doing it for people out there who maybe don't have the time to to read all these issues um, or maybe not the patience to read all these issues because I'll, I'll say sometimes I'm reading these issues and shaking my head like, what, what is going on? But, yeah, that's why I do this. Uh, so thanks, Dusty Ray. And, you know, uh, I read all my reviews. Uh, I'll probably even read some negative ones. Because I want to grow as a show, grow as a, as a podcaster, um, get better at what I'm doing. And if you have any suggestions, you know, leave a review or, you know, hit me up. You know, what, what should I be doing differently? What don't you like? What do you like? Let me know. Um, until next time, let's uh, park the old uh, time, the old time dirigible. Let's, yeah, you know, this, this week it's a dirigible. Well, we're going we're gonna to park the, we're going to park the, uh, time dirigible at the top of the Empire State Building where they have places to do that and we'll let it, we'll let it rest until next week. Um, as always, I'm Nick Byers, I'm your host, and uh, bye. Bye.